Hello and welcome to the spiritguides.co.uk network radio show with your host Mark Chatterton. Today we are privileged to have on the show Dr. Eben Alexander from the United States. His book, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, has been causing waves on both sides of the Atlantic since it was published in October. Back in November 2008, Dr. Alexander was living his life working as a neurosurgeon at a hospital in Virginia. Then he mysteriously contracted bacterial meningitis, which virtually killed him. Yet, after being in a coma for seven days, he recovered completely and was able to recount his near-death experience. Dr. Alexander has written down all that he experienced in his book, which we will be discussing tonight, as well as Dr. Alexander's views on death and indeed life beyond death. So a warm welcome to you, Dr. Alexander. Well, thank you very much for having me. That's great. Okay, let's start with the first question. I'd like to ask you, first of all, um, about death. And I know in your book, you, you do go into detail about what death is which I understand is not so much about the heart stopping beating, but more about the brain ceasing to function. Is that correct? Well, I would say in, in looking at near-death experiences, uh, I, I do make the point in the book that uh, it really is a question of what has happened with the brain in terms of trying to interpret uh, uh, the experience, and uh, more so than the heart. I mean, the the view that many people have that if your heart stops and then it's um, brought back to life sometime later that you died and came back. But what really matters is what has happened to the brain in that interim. So in your experience, um, what could you describe what happened to your brain? And would you say it had, had stopped or, or had you reached brain death? Or, or what exactly would, would you say had happened there? Okay, well... It was a very sudden uh, onset, uh, like being struck by a freight train. About 4.30 in the morning on November 10th, 2008, I woke up with severe back pain. And that progressed over the next few hours to involve a, a, the worst headache I could imagine. Uh, and then going rapidly into coma. I had a grand mal seizure, and I don't remember anything from the onset of that seizure for the next seven days. Uh, and uh, I was put on a ventilator as soon as I got to the emergency room, and my neurologic condition um, worsened through that week, and initially there was some sedation, but then uh, even as they lightened up the sedation, uh, there, there was uh, no significant uh, remnant on my neurologic exam. Uh, I had lost some brainstem uh, findings even early in the week, and in addition to having a complete shutdown of my neocortex, uh, and towards the end of the week, I was even losing what I had left in the brainstem. I did not get to a state that we would call brain dead, uh, although certainly my neocortical function, the part that gives us consciousness, the, uh, um, you know, everything above kind of brainstem reflexes, that part was gone from the very beginning. Uh, and that's why I was on the ventilator uh, for a week. So when you experienced everything you experienced on the other side, um, you began by being in this dark, muddy state of existence, which you call in the book the realm of the earthworm's eye view. 
could this be what some people maybe think of as hell, or would you see it a different place than that? Well, uh, for the longest time, I concluded that the um, that earthworm eye view, the very murky kind of underground, monotonous, pounding, unresponsive realm, um, was the best consciousness that my brain could muster uh, while it was soaking in pus. And that's why uh, the other realms were so surprising because they would emerge right out of that as this crisp, uh, hyper real, uh, and very responsive realm. And then I would tumble back into that earthworm eye view. Um, the more reading I've done about the afterlife literature, uh, the more I question whether or not this may have been one of the, the levels uh, of the Bardos, um, for, for example, reported in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So in other words, it's, it's not quite as simple as I may have assumed originally that that was just the best consciousness that my brain could muster with, with uh, pus completely inactivating the neocortex, the outer surface that makes us human. So you eventually were able to move out of this area and were taken up into the light with, you mentioned, music and angelic beings and so on. Is it possible to explain in mere human words what, what you actually experienced? Well, it, um, it was an absolutely gorgeous uh, realm. Is What happened was when I was in that murky earthworm eye view and Again, having no memory of my life before, which is important to understand, the meningitis had very effectively wiped out uh, my knowing of my existence uh, before coma. And so I really had no identity as, as a human at all, and no memory of humans and no language. Uh, and in the midst of all that, after a very long time, uh, was this slowly spinning light that came close to me, and it had... Uh, a lovely melody, a perfect musical melody associated with it. And that white light then opened as a rip in the fabric of reality around me, and I emerged up into this brightly lit, very verdant valley, uh, very lush, green flowers, blossoming buds opening, even as I went by. I had no body awareness in that gateway realm. I was moving up through it, though, because I was uh, a speck on this butterfly wing. And using the word butterfly, this was not a butterfly that would be identifiable with a genus and species. It was just the best word I can put on it. But it was a very powerful visual and experiential reality. And beside me on this wing was a lovely girl, absolutely beautiful smile, uh, soft brown hair, blue eyes, just this absolutely lovely creature. And she never said a word, but her thoughts came straight into me as concepts, into my awareness. You are loved, you are cherished dearly forever. Uh, you have nothing to fear, and there's nothing you can do wrong in this realm. Uh, there's plenty we can do wrong in the earthly realm, but where I was then in that gateway in heavenly, going off to the heavenly realm, um, there was nothing I had to worry about doing wrong. Uh, I didn't understand the rules of this place, so clearly it was uh, wonderful to be reassured that I would be taken care of and that I was loved and cherished and, and that everything would be fine. I didn't have anything to fear. Uh, and there was this soft summer breeze that blew through at that point, which was my awareness of the divine all through every bit of this. And what I 
recalled later and, and wrote down uh, as peasants or souls dancing below us uh, with children playing and dogs jumping and lots of mirth and joy. And then up above these arcs of lumin luminescent beings leaving shimmering trails. And as they swoop through the sky in these formations beside these billowing clouds uh, with the backdrop of a dark kind of blue-black sky, these anthems or hymns would come down from these shimmering, uh, swooping orbs of light up above. Uh, and the, the music that they put out just had crescendo after crescendo after crescendo of these lovely hymns and chants and beyond any earthly music. And from there, we went out of this universe. And the entire scene collapsed, and I remember seeing higher... Uh, dimensional uh, space collapse and time as we see it here collapsed into a tight loop but there was a higher time of uh, outside of this realm and higher dimensional space that had to do with a different causality very much related to our souls and the eternity of our souls and our souls uh, coming in and out of lives here and as I went out and that whole multiverse collapsed I entered what I call in the book the core, which was this infinite, inky black, but infinitely loving and divinely cherishing realm that was filled with the, the unconditional love of that creative force behind it all, the source. And in, in that realm, there was also this brilliant orb of light, and it was a sense of really the three of us, this brilliant orb of light, which I almost looked at as an interpreter, uh, and then that divine, all-powerful, creative, and all-loving, uh, what I think most people would call God, behind it all. I must say, though, the, the awe inspired in me in that presence was so great that for the first few months as I was writing this up, even after I'd been convinced to write it up as a neuroscientific report, and try and explain the hyper-real uh, experience deep in coma, uh, I would not even use the word God because I was so awed by the power of that present. It was beyond any human words or description or pictures or anything. And uh, But in fact, I used the word om, which was the sound that I heard almost as a resonance of... Uh, a resonance in that eternal, boundless, inky black space filled with the light of that orb and filled with the love of that divine. And outside of all eternity, if you can imagine a resonance that would be in something with infinite spatial and temporal extent and higher dimensional space. But that was the sound, was the om. And so that's what I used as a word for that all-loving creative source. Because it's interesting that you use the word om because... That is used in Eastern religions, obviously, in meditation and so on. I don't know if you've, you've come across that before at all. I, I did about uh, two and a half years after my coma. Uh, people, you know, as I was talking more and more about the experience, uh, people who were versed in uh, Eastern mystical traditions would tell me that Om was uh, often, a, you know, a sound or a word that was associated with those meditations. Uh, which certainly made good sense to me, but it was not anything I'd heard about before. No, no, no. And when you're in this presence of the divine, was there any fear or anything like that at all? 
not in the presence of that divine at all. In fact, in that earthworm eye view, uh, initially I, I did not have fear because I thought that nothing mattered. My existence could continue or it could cease and it did not matter. Uh, once I ascended up into that beautiful gateway, which is, uh, you know, with the butterflies and the flowers and the beautiful girl, and of course, a lot of the skeptics get hung up and say, oh, come on, how can that be any part of heaven, uh, you know, with all those earthly trappings? And of course, what they forget is this can be very real, and then in fact, earth may be more inspired from that realm, kind of akin to Plato's world of forms, uh, than the other way around. So don't get hung up and lost thinking, well, this has got to be just psychology of the human brain mm. and, you know, seeing the spirits you want to see as your brain dies. Uh, people kind of lose track of that, although I, I do believe that our personal and our cultural bias of our, that's built into our brain and mind does influence uh, how we experience that realm, especially what we bring back. When we come back to the earthly realm, uh, some of our biases may show. So it doesn't surprise me that a Christian might go to this very same realm and be convinced they've seen Jesus, and a Buddhist might see Buddha, a Muslim might see Muhammad. Uh, but when they come back, just because they've put that kind of a, a trapping over the top of it doesn't mean they didn't go to a real place and have a very real experience. But we do interpret them when we come back. To me, the shocking thing was the reality of that realm and that, in fact, it's much more real than this realm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, when you were on the other side, you had no memory of being Eben Alexander or about your earthly life or who you truly were. Is it as though you, it was veiled to you in the same way that the heavenly realm is veiled to people on earth? Um, do, would, would there be a reason for, for this or... You know, do we need to to lose our our memories here before we can understand it? But what I'm no, I, sorry, I'm quite certain that um, uh, I mean my experience, and I attribute this to the meningitis as being the thing that kind of launched me into this. Uh, and in many ways, it's kind of the exception that proves the rule because by having the severe meningitis that completely. Uh, inactivated my neocortex, the part that makes us human, which in fact was kind of shocking to me because at the very dumbest level that, that my brain was dumbed down to, that's when the blinders would come off and this crisp hyper-reality would open up and emerge out of it that was much more responsive and vibrant and interactive and complex than even my healthy brain right now could muster. And that's the thing that's so surprising. And so initially I was trying to write it up as a neuroscientific report, but then when I came to understand just how sick I was, and it's because I had meningitis, anything else that would have sent me into coma would not have been as efficient at wiping out that best calculator we have in our brain, which is the cortex. And that's a crucial part of putting together our consciousness. So in effect, my NDE had a few different features because I was temporarily amnesic for my earthly life before. But that should not take away from the fact that, that it really shows the reality of that realm, that it's not a brain-based delusion or hallucination or psychosis, because those parts of my brain that might have assembled such a hallucination or dream state um, were inactive. 
there's no, there was no place in my brain for that very rich experience to happen. And there were clues, especially in the faces that I saw at the very end of my experience, uh, five of whom were physically present the last 15 hours I was in coma, and one of whom, uh, Susan Wrenches, is a, a good friend of my wife's who never was physically there, but channeled to me from a home in Chapel Hill about 120 miles away on the fourth and fifth nights of my seven-day coma. And those events, seeing those faces, all occurred towards the very end of the experience, which tells me that the majority of it occurred between days one and and four or five, which is when I was in deep coma, uh, very well demonstrated on my exams and in my medical record. Right. Okay. When um, you experienced these events, did, would you say now, looking back on it, that um maybe you were chosen to experience these things. Do you think it, we, we have a, a chosen path before we were born and, and we have to live it and experience it? Do you, do you have that belief now at all? Well, as, as I said, I, I spent such a long time. Uh, I told my son when I first got out of the hospital, my older son who was majoring in neuroscience, Evan Fourth, I said, this was way too real to be real. And I'd already talked to my physicians enough to know that I had been very sick and I better, you know, just remember, I've been so sick that this was some very, very strange brain-based something. And so um, even though, to me, I was as shocked by it as anybody is with a profound near-death experience, uh, I was my own worst skeptic. And I was trying to write it up as a neuroscientific uh, report. Um, and then, of course, over time, I came to realize that because of the meningitis, I really should not have had any experience whatsoever and had no memories of any experience whatsoever. And yet I had all these, uh, this rich odyssey that in fact when I first came out of coma, and, and remember when I came out of coma, I still had almost no language and no memories of my life before. All that stuff came back, language over a day or two, family memories over a week or two, and all of my knowledge of neuroscience uh, came back over about uh, probably four, three or four weeks. Uh, and as it came back, it was shocked because I was already writing this incredibly rich journey, 20,000 words that I wrote in the first six weeks about my experience. And my older son was wise enough to advise me at the very beginning, don't read anything about near-death experiences. Don't even talk to anyone who was there when you were coming out of coma. Write everything down that you can remember. And so I didn't talk with anybody and I didn't read anything. And in with his instructions, wrote about 20,000 words of the experience itself, of what I remember from deep in coma. And so that was just shocking that, to have that kind of experience. Uh, the other thing is after I started to wake up when the tube was taken out, the breathing tube, on the seventh day, and that was to the shock of my doctors who by that time predicted that I was down to about a 2% chance of survival with no chance of neurologic recovery. And they told my wife that she'd be raising my sons, our sons alone because um, there was, I would spend three months in hospital and then the rest of my life in a nursing home at best uh, in a persistent vegetative state. So they were shocked when I was coming back from all this, um, to say the least. Because I suppose it, many people would see, see it as a miracle what happened to you, that the fact that you, you know, were perfectly back to normal as, as you were before. 
No, not doctors a would tell you that it's a miracle. They would say there's no medical explanation for it. I had an E. coli meningitis, which is about a 1 in 10 million probability in adults. Uh, when I first went into the emergency room, uh, at the very beginning, when I was already in coma and seizing, uh, by having bacterial meningitis and rapid descent into coma, my chance of surviving that illness, even in the emergency room, was somewhere under 10%. And that number went down during the week as I failed to respond to antibiotics and failed to show any kind of neurologic improvement. Uh, so the numbers looked like there was no way to come out. So my doctors were quite shocked. But, of course, I was very busy trying to explain it all. And it, it took me more than two years to finally get to the point that you mentioned in your question of thinking that maybe it all happened for a reason. But my preference as a healer as a neurosurgeon, is to try and understand it and apply these lessons uh, to others in healing and to help fellow physicians understand it. Uh, I think I've, I'm very different as a healer now because I see myself and family and patients uh, very much as physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and divine beings uh, networked with other such divine beings, our soulmates, uh, and I see hardship and difficulty and illness and disease as opportunities for growth that have to do with what our, our eternal spiritual selves are doing here in the first place uh, in this realm. Uh, maybe I was chosen for a reason, but my book uh, was inspired mainly by my scientific interest in understanding consciousness and understanding better uh, you know, the nature of these ultra-real near-death experiences and how they, in fact, prove something about the eternity of our souls uh, in a way that helps the field of the neuroscience of consciousness uh, and philosophy of mind in explaining uh, the hard problem of consciousness and what's called the enigma of quantum mechanics. So to me, I, it's still a scientific and philosophical uh, approach to explaining my situation but luckily, one of the easy results from all that is recognizing the eternity of our souls. So what about the scientists that, and sort of medical people that you've spoken to since your experience? Have you had much opposition or, or support or indifference even? What's the sort of reaction been really? Well, I would say certainly to um, thoughtful uh, members of the neurosurgical neuroscience community, um, it's very easy to realize that all this is very real and a very powerful lesson about the nature of consciousness. And um, like I said, it gets right down to what's called the hard problem of consciousness, which is those who study neuroscience of consciousness will, many will admit that the hard problem of consciousness is probably the most challenging problem known to all of humanity. It's basically admitting that no one on earth has the remotest clue how consciousness emerges out of the physical brain. So all we know about physics, chemistry, biology of the brain, there's not a person on earth who can then tell you how that gives rise to consciousness. And that's a very deep and profound issue that to me, especially combined with the enigma of quantum mechanics, very uh, easily points to the mystery of consciousness as something where consciousness is very likely primary and does not emerge from the brain at all. I see that we're conscious in spite of our brain, that 
the brain is more of a reducing valve or filter. So it's clearly related to consciousness, but it's a giant mistake to think that it, it creates consciousness. Yes, uh, I know um, on the other side, you, you mentioned about the, the scientists. What about uh, people of religious backgrounds? You've had a little bit of opposition, I think, from some sort of Christian groups and, and so on. How, how, do you, how do you deal with that? I think that is very true, that uh, you know, if people are looking for uh, yet another uh, near-death experience where um, you know, somebody goes on this journey and, and sees Jesus and comes back and talks about that, uh, they're going to be disappointed because I did not see Jesus. And in fact, you know, I did not see my father either. If I had scripted this, uh, I would have seen my, my father, who was a neurosurgeon, very renowned neurosurgeon. Um, I just honored him so much. I followed in his footsteps as best I could, realizing I could never fill those shoes. Um, he was a tremendous inspiration to me, wonderful soul, who had passed over four years before my coma. And he was not there. That was a giant mystery to me especially as I came to realize I'd been on a tremendous spiritual journey that did not happen in my brain at all. It was, it was absolutely real in a most important realm, and yet my father was not there. Um, and I have, you know, for a while I realized that by, not, by the meningitis having kind of wiped out my personal history, at least temporarily, uh, that enabled me to have kind of a, a different near-death experience in some sense. Uh, don't diminish the fact that because of the widespread destruction of my neocortex, it wasn't a very powerful near-death experience and one that serves as a lesson that all this is very real. Uh, but not having my father there, and, you know, I've, I've been a Christian, even though for reasons I go into in my book, I had pretty much lost my faith in, in a loving God. I'd lost all faith in any prayer, uh, for eight years before my coma. And that obviously changed completely. I still go to a Christian church. I go to an Episcopal church. Uh, and I very much uh, love Jesus and the love that he taught. But I cannot make up, you know, that I saw Jesus in my near-death journey because I did not see him. And I'm simply reporting the facts as they were. I get a lot of grief over, you know, butterflies and angels and this beautiful girl. Um People who read the book will realize, well, uh, you know, the butterflies and the flowers and the dancing villagers, you could argue that that comes from an earthly realm. I would actually argue that that realm is so uh, kind of beautiful and strange and, and more real than this one and more important in so many ways that I look at this as, as kind of the world that emerges from that one and not the other way around. Uh, but... It's uh, important. And then, of course, there was the, the core, which was outside of all of higher dimensional space and time. And there were many lessons there about how all this works, so much of which I could not bring back because it's so far beyond human conception. But I do meditate. I use centering prayer and deep meditation um, to get back to some of the knowing. And, and that's what I tell people. You don't have to almost die to get this. Uh, we can all get to the same realm by believing in the reality of it and going deep into our own consciousness and using meditation or prayer to turn off that little voice in our head. The voice in our head is not our self, and it is uh, not our consciousness even. Our consciousness witnesses it, 
but we can go into meditation and get well beyond the limits of the physical brain, uh, off into the same territory I visited in my near-death experience. Right, because obviously you've, you mentioned about um, you, you now practice meditation. Would you say anything else has changed since since your experience about your beliefs about the afterlife and so on? Well, yes, I, I'm, I know with certainty that, that God and heaven are real. I know with as much certainty as I, as I can have as a thinking, rational human being with my experience in life and all of my knowledge that our souls are eternal and that the brain only uh, serves as that filtering mechanism. But in fact, our, our consciousness, our awareness is freed up when it's no longer bound by the limitations of the physical brain. And that's what we can get into in prayer and meditation and what we obviously get into uh, when this physical life is over and when I leave this body behind. I see it as uh, the act of the play. When this act of the play is over, I get rid of this costume. I reunite with my higher soul and with my soulmates in that realm on the heavenly side of the, of the veil, go through life reviews, and then we come up with our next incarnation and come back and do it again. I mean, the other part of this um, was it was very clear to me that eternity of souls also does not fit the traditional Christian teaching um, because, in fact, reincarnation is a huge part of it. And, in fact, our souls are still aspiring to that uh, in a sense, the deification or becoming one at the highest level uh, with that perfect God, but that we do it through many, many lives. And of course, in this life, you know, people who are kind of old souls and young souls. And young souls, uh, I had an example a few weeks ago of a young, of a very old soul who happened to be in a three-year-old boy, three-year-old boy with a brain tumor, uh, who was uh, within uh, days of losing his physical body, but it was crystal clear from the story uh, when I was talking with his grandfather uh, that he was a very old soul, and this was his, his lesson that he was teaching them on the way out. Um, our life is so much richer than it ever was when I thought, in my materialistic terms, you know, birth to death, that's all there is to it. I now know it's far richer than that, that, our, that it's more meaningful and much more important what we do here. And it has everything to do with manifesting that unconditional love of the Creator uh, and of showing compassion and forgiveness. Any aspects of a religion that are uh, limiting and exclusive and say we're, we're the best religion, the others are, are no good, uh, those are very dysfunctional human thoughts and have nothing to do with the true power of the real God underlying every bit of this existence, uh, which is that we are here truly to love one another and to uh, practice the compassion and forgiveness uh, that has been taught for thousands of years. And that's a very powerful, concrete reality. Right. Well, thank you for sharing that, that with us. I know... Um there's a lot of people who've placed a lot of emphasis on the year 2012 and the date, the 21st of December. I don't know if you've got any views on that at all or, or have come across it much. I don't really know very much about the, the Mayan culture, but I, I do realize that they had very sophisticated views of time and realized that Earth time was very much illusory uh, in a sense. 
so it wouldn't surprise me if they were privy to, to some kind of major change that's coming. Uh, what I see is that this world is is really waking up, that in fact we are undergoing a global change. I, I think uh, things like the, uh, the Arab Spring and a lot of what we've seen with kind of this global economic collapse, uh, in a sense, is kind of cracking the, the shell of the egg uh, because I believe that there is a, a very powerful and what I see a very hopeful awakening of global consciousness, uh, the freedom of the individual by recognizing that through prayer and meditation and getting in touch with our inner conscious selves, we can see that we are all one. We are all truly connected, not just humans, but with all of life and not just life on earth, that we're part of a much grander community of life and consciousness and that we are actually witnessing now uh, kind of that awakening uh, in a global sense that will bring much uh, peace and and hope and and love for one another uh, to all countries of this world. And uh, I'm very optimistic about it. Yes, because I know that you, as a result of your experience, you've you've set up this charity called Eternia. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and how that that's working? So, and people can visit it at E-T-E-R-N-E-A dot org. Um, basically, Eternia was the brainchild of John Audette. Uh, John is a very good friend of mine who was one of the founding members of the International Association of Near-Death Studies uh, more than 35 years ago. Um, and he realized way back then, he was a close friend of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's, he realized that near-death experiences should bring to this world a knowing of the eternity of our souls and that there is an all-loving God right there. And um, he met me after I gave a talk to that organization a little over a year ago, and that's when we started thinking that this was a, a very good move. It's, some, it's his brainchild. He's the brilliant mind behind it. Um, but I'm hoping with the momentum of my book that people will visit Eternia.org. It's all about uh, the synthesis of science and spirituality. It has to do with understanding the physics of consciousness, and we support research, and also it serves as a database uh, for people to report their own spiritually transformative experiences, and we also serve to educate the public about all the different variety of those, not just near-death experiences, but all manner of experiences where people see evidence of the reality of their departed souls of their loved ones um, and of other souls influencing us and just knowing that there's something much more to this life than this material world, uh, especially given the fact that physical science, as close as they may be to their presumed theory of everything, and of course I realize from my journey that human minds will never be able to fully explain even the physical universe, much less the uh, uh, more powerful underlying and more real spiritual universe that is right there inside all of us because of our being conscious. Um, but anyway, the physicalist model uh, has not the remotest clue how to explain consciousness, and that's a very big clue to people about what is going on here. Right. Well, 
it's been fascinating talking to you, Dr. Alexander, and I appreciate you giving your time to speak to us here at the Spirit Guides Network Radio. Um, just sort of one final question. I know you, you experienced so much. Is there any likelihood that you're going to do a second book or anything to, to take us further along your journey at all? Actually, uh, my manuscript was about three times as long as the current book. Right. Um, and the reason was I wrote the manuscript for myself. I had to understand my experience. I had to make sense of it in a way that at least I would have a consistent worldview, uh, even though, of course, I, I knew I would not have all the answers. Um, and required going very, very deep into the hard problem of consciousness, into physics, uh, into the very nature of mass and energy, and especially of space and time. And so, yes, there is definitely a second book that I'm working on. It'll be several years in the making. And it'll uh, kind of be centered around the very uh, concepts of free will versus predetermination. You know, is there a divine plan and is there any such thing as free will, which I believe very strongly we do have. Um, and also we'll get into issues about space and time and consciousness uh, and why the physical realm that we see here uh, as the materialists are rushing headlong to tell us, there's no material behind the material world. You know, <laughs> vibrating strings of of uh, energy in higher dimensional space time. Of, I mean, I'm not saying I I understand it by a long shot, but I also know that there are some truths about our existence that have much more to do with uh, the reason we're here and understanding love as that force of affinity. Uh, kind of an attractive force, that love of the creator, uh, in, a, in a sense kind of like gravity and, and like the affinity produced by the symmetry of quantum mechanics as it gives rise to the orbitals of, of carbon uh, and how carbon serves uh, for biochemistry and for supernova synthesis of higher elements. Um, but anyway, yes, there is a second book, but it'll deal very heavily with uh, much more about the reason for our existence, of uh, uh, reincarnation, um, and some of the really tougher aspects of the question of, of free will and why we're here. And I would invite people to visit my website, lifebeyonddeath.net, to get more information about the book and about my story, interviews, uh, and where we're going from here. Right. Well, thank you ever so much for that, uh, uh, Dr. Alexander. We'll put all the um, links to your to web, to various websites at the end of the interview anyway, but... Um, Thank you ever so much and, and we wish you very well for the future.